Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk with another disruptor who has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Who is this guy we're talking to today? Well, today's guest is disrupting the corporate hiring scene. He helps underrepresented, underestimated, my favorite, and underpaid talent land high-paying jobs at the world's best tech companies. But what makes him so in the know to be able to disrupt this scene? Well, he's an ex-Google, ex-Facebook, ex-Salesforce, ex-American Express employee. He's also the world's greatest dad, if that has anything to do with it. We're talking to him today because he knows from the inside out the start-to-finish walkthrough of how to get hired at any of the FANG companies. He's been there, he's seen what's broken and how to fix it. Coming to us live from Brooklyn, New York, please welcome our disruptor, founder, CEO, and chief accelerator of Kadima Careers, Alan Stein. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt the cheers, but hey, thank you, you so much. In the background. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much here, KJ, for being part of Disruption Interruption. I love what you're doing and I appreciate you inviting me onto your platform. You are so welcome. Well, I am so interested in this different disruption, right? It's like this wedge into something that I never really knew could be penetrated. So before we get into that, I would like you to tell our audience, what is your main ingredient for disruption? My, my main ingredient is questioning everything. So things are done for irrational legacy reasons or for or misaligned incentives. So I I just like to question things of why they're done this way and how can they be done better? Yeah, that's really interesting. So legacy, right? That uh, tends to be the standard the bigger the corporation gets, right? Yeah. And misaligned incentives. So that's fascinating to me. Tell me, what's the status quo of the, would you call it the hiring process or recruiting talent for these types of companies? Yeah. What is the status quo? And are there misaligned incentives? Yeah, KJ. So the hiring process recruiting is a huge field. There's millions, if not billions of jobs out there. I focus specifically on some of the most attractive companies out there. So if you think about the FANGs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, if you think of the big tech companies, Microsoft, Salesforce, Stripe, Spotify, PayPal, companies like that, Adobe. So those organizations, the status quo for them is they are such attractive organizations. And even beyond those 10, there's 100, maybe the Fortune 500 companies you can consider, but especially the, the top companies that are tech and are sexy industries, they open up roles and streams of applicants come in. So the status quo is these companies are hiring machines, are hiring hundreds, thousands, 
tens of thousands. I believe Amazon hired over 100,000 people last year. And they are doing it the same way because they are attractive brands and they get millions of applicants every year. Is this for them when you say they're doing it the same way? I mean, they're getting millions of applicants. So in essence, their stats are up. People want to come to them. So what's wrong with the process that needs to be changed? Because when you're looking at something, when stats are going up and they do want applicants to choose from, right? What would behoove them to change? Not much, honestly, because these top companies kind of have the pick of the litter of talent. So they get a lot of inbound and you parlay that or you complement that with referrals. So people in these companies like to refer people as well. And people in those companies know people that are very similar to themselves. So the people that are applying, these hundreds of thousands of millions of people are applying, and they're not always applying at the right place or at the right times, then you take on referrals. And I believe about a third of hires are referrals at some of the top companies. And so these organizations that need to hire quickly in mass don't have a hard time finding talent. And then they identify 10 pole sort of locations or talent pools to select from. So they can go to Harvard Business School, they can go to Stanford, they can go to Dartmouth, they can go to Columbia, they can go to any school that they want. And they can go there and they will attract tons of high quality talent. So they have such a mass of quantity of talent, and then they can very easily choose from that. And they don't need to worry about people that are not coming in there because they are, if they need to hire, if Google has to hire 10,000 people in a year and they're getting 3 million resumes, they can easily find 10,000 great candidates that way. Easily. So you focus on the underserved, underrepresented, overlooked, but very talented candidates. So it seems to me that the candidate is the one that's going to have to disrupt through you. Yes, because the companies are not incented to do so because they have no dearth of applicants. No dearth, no desire to change their system. Their system's working. There, There is some desire. A lot of it is performative. So a lot of these organizations do say that they want to increase diversity. And I do honestly believe from the bottom of their heart, most of the leaders there actually do want that to occur. But what's more important is to hire quickly, to fill these roles quickly. So if diversity can enhance the situation, great, but it's not going to slow down the machine of just gobbling up all this great talent that is interested in working for these top companies. So what's the viewpoint about diversity here? Because I take it that what you're doing is these underrepresented, underestimated applicants do fall into that diversity bucket. Is that right? Uh, For the most part, yes. Yeah. And and like I define underrepresented by the same terms that the tech companies define underrepresented. And if you look on their website, they define it as black, Latinx, women, uh, sometimes they include LGBTQ, military vets, Native American. I think I said, if I didn't say differently abled as well. No, you didn't say that, but yeah. So that's what they generally consider diverse, but all the companies honestly are looking for black talent for, and partially because that has been the most underserved. If you look at the metrics, if you look at a lot of the tech companies, they have between two and 4% 
of their population, their employee base is black. And in the U.S., the numbers are 13%. So they're significantly below the black representation. They're significantly below women. They're significantly below Latinx. But there's a lot of social pressure on on the companies as well to focus on black talent, which right. honestly, they, they should be solving all of it. And it's all there. There's plenty of great, diverse talent out there. Yeah, they should be solving all of it. Where's the big problem? Where's the big bottleneck or issue where they're not doing that? So recruiters, well, if you think about the decision makers, hiring managers are looking to hire someone to fill a role. So they want to hire quality with speed. And if they get diverse talent, great, but they just want to hire quality and speed. The recruiter wants to hire quickly and volume. So speed and volume, because they have a, a group of roles that they need to fill. And sometimes they're measured on their speed. They are never, some very few companies are measured on the candidate experience. Then there's another part of the organization that is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And very rarely does recruiting and DEI roll up to the same leader. Some ultimately they do, but because they usually roll up to chief people officer or HR or things of that nature. But the DEI team is focused on different they want things to be more diverse, but the recruiters are focused on speed and volume. And outside of a few companies that are doing some interesting things with changing the incentive structure and changing the the playing field to encourage more Black and Latinx applicants to be considered, the recruiters are focused on speed and volume. The hiring manager is incented on speed and quality. So that if they get a black uh, talented woman awesome but if the first four people that come in are from brown and warden and stanford and northwestern then i'll look at those candidates and i'm sure they're quite good got it and you said they're really not graded on their uh, the applicant experience no right. not at all so not at all. That, that, no and i i speak to so many clients that get upset when they get ghosted by a recruiter. And for those people that don't know what ghosted means, it's when you're talking to the recruiter and then all of a sudden, like they're wooing you and they're talking about what how you'll be so great for Google or what have you. And then all of a sudden they go missing. They disappeared like yeah. a ghost. So uh, clients get upset by that. They get insulted by that. I've had clients write off a whole company because they're like, hey, if Salesforce is not going to get back to me, fuck them. I'm never going to work <laughs> yeah. there. I but, can understand why people feel that way. Yeah, but that yeah. could happen anywhere at any could happen anywhere. Because again, the recruiter is probably supporting 20 simultaneous roles. And each of those roles, they may be speaking to 10 or 20 candidates. So that's 300 people that they're talking with. And what they really care about is filling those 20 roles. So once they have someone far along that has filled that role, the other 19 people or whoever were part of that initial funnel for that role may or may not get a response and may or, and most likely will not get a phone call response unless you're actually going ahead with it. So you'll just get a canned response email of, thank you for applying. We decided to go with another candidate. We can't provide you any feedback. Good luck. 
And that's the void that they left. And so what does this do to applicants? Do they, these clients of yours and these candidates, do they get extremely frustrated, dejected, depressed, unhappy? They write the companies off. I mean, is it a small percentage that really kicks ass and persists and tries to figure this out like you did? So the ones that have successful outcome are ones that shake it off and persist and understand that it's not about them that it's just the system that they're working within people that like people that write it off and you start eliminating things and you start saying oh i'm not going to take this job because they treated me poorly once or i'm not going to take that job because my friend nancy over there says that the work-life balance is bad even though glassdoor says it's quite good if you start writing off all these things you're limiting your opportunities so you need to approach this as a candidate as a salesperson or you're you're not selling yourself in this case you're renting yourself you are trying to convince you're trying to market and sell yourself to an enterprise your enterprise sales to pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars for your services per year unlike a SaaS model like a software model there's no contract though so if you start working there they can cancel the subscription with you right away same thing you can pull yourself out of that company right away people think that there is some sort of contractual bond there there's not especially in the united states all these companies are employed at will uh, and employees are employed at will which means that they can fire you for any reason and you can quit for any reason and individuals don't always understand that that's that importance that and people think that the company is going to treat them better than they will some companies will because they do care about that reputation because that attracts talent and that also is a good thing to do and there are most most people are good people i find but there's no ramification if all of a sudden they said hey kj we no longer need you in this role they don't need to give you two weeks unless they have documentation that's how they treat you and unless they're trying to cover their ass. So if they try to get rid of you, KJ, they might have to do a little bit more due diligence because you're a woman and you're a protected class. I'm a dude. They, but they still have to cover their ass for me. But I can tell you, I've been fired before and they were able to get rid of me. They're like, yeah, you can get rid of people for any reason for, yeah. So you are employed at will. Right. Well, it is really important to know that. I think people do have a different idea about that, probably, especially when they're being hired by one of the fangs. Yeah. And these companies do have good reputations and they generally treat people well. But when the company has 100,000 people, if you are in one of the 1% that has a bad experience there, that is 10,000 people or was a thousand people out of 100,000. So it's a lot of people. And maybe it's, it's probably more than 1% that are having a, a suboptimal experience. Yeah. When did you decide, when did you say that's it? That's definite. I'm going to do something about this. Like what led you to do this? You want to create, what is it? A million careers? I, I want to accelerate a million careers. Yeah. You want to accelerate a million careers. When did you have this epiphany where you're like, that's it? It was a combination of things. I've always been, I've never been a recruiter. I've always, I've managed operations teams. I've managed marketing teams, uh, finance teams, sports, sports marketing teams. My 
the thing that I've always been attracted to and enjoyed is attracting, growing and developing talent. So I always raised my hand for recruiting things. I always did on-campus recruiting. I launched a lot of recruiting efforts at companies that I worked at. So it was always something that I was passionate about. Over the course of my career, I probably applied for five different recruiting or people operations roles within Google and Salesforce, maybe one in Facebook. Uh, yeah, one in Facebook as well. And I was turned away because I did not have recruiting experience. That's a shame. And I, a shame. I actually, I vehemently disagree with them because I have actually taken on the role of a recruiter because not only as a hiring manager have I done that, but I've worked with recruiters in the past that have had to go on maternity leave or something like that. And I said, hey, I'll take over the screening for this while you're out. And she gave me access to the ATS and the systems. And I did the screening essentially. I did a lot of the work. And one time when I was at Tableau, I was so distraught over the lack of diverse candidates that we were sourcing that I complained to senior level leader in recruiting. And instead of addressing my concerns, what he did is, here, we'll give you a license to the LinkedIn recruiter and go find them yourself. So I wound up actually being a recruiter for myself. I didn't really know what I was doing with the uh, LinkedIn recruiter tool, although it's quite powerful. So I was doing a lot of this stuff just out of my passion and excitement. So I was doing that, and I was also naturally good at helping people with career advice and guidance. Well, during my time at Google, I got nine referrals into Google, and that's very unusual to have so many get through the process. Like my, the person who referred me, for instance, I was his only referral that ever got through in his 10-year career at Google. And I was there for six years. I got nine people through. So I, I like doing it. I enjoy doing it. And then in June of 2020, the George Floyd murder occurred which was bullshit and the stuff has happened for years, but not so like in your face and so obvious about all these systemic biases in our system. My wife started reading the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And it talked about how like a lot of people are not racist and I would never consider myself to be racist, but unless you actually take proactive action, you're kind of just condoning uh, the 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 status quo so kind of just I, being suppressively reasonable about it right yeah yeah i have raised a stink at times at different companies because of the the problems with the diversity like i volunteered to go down to hbcus historical black colleges and universities at google and i remember my manager who's a director at google at the time said alan focus on women there's 50% of the population that are women. There's only 13% that are black. Focus on the bigger pool. I was like, why can't I do both? And he's like, don't overcomplicate it. So like, I've seen this shit occur throughout my over career. Over and over and over. Yeah. And like, this guy wasn't racist. He was kind of being practical. He's like, like thinking that it's not a good use of my time to go down to Spelman or to Howard or wherever. And maybe it wasn't a good use of my time. And I could have like recruited people from New York, which I was able to do. But the fact that um, they're, they're not taking some of these proactive efforts, because again, on that team, I was like, he wanted me to hire quickly and with quality. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like speed is this big factor. It's this big conundrum, right? Yeah, yeah. So in, in quick answer to your question, how I came, decided to do this, the George Floyd thing came out, how to be an anti-racist came out. And I was like, how can I take anti-racist action? 
and I've been helpful with getting white dudes and white women and some people of color as well into these companies. But by simply expanding the scope of people that I talk to, I network with, and I support, I can do the same thing for Black, for Latinx, for women, for differently abled. So I'm just deploying my efforts to the groups that actually can best be helped because they have the least insight and the least connections. And if you don't have the connections inside, then it becomes more of an opaque, confusing, challenging process. Then for someone like me, when I applied, I started talking to people inside. I was like, oh, what is it like to interview at Google? And I spoke to like four or five people because I was able to find those people. But if I didn't have those connections, I would have gone into that interview blind and I would have probably got royally screwed instead of passed the interviews. So you reached out to these people. You didn't know them, but you could find them and you reached out to them and got some inside information and it helped your progress. Do you find that there's just not enough of the diverse candidates that are actually applying for these companies because they either don't think that they can get in, they don't know the process, they're already daunted by it? I mean, I ask this because we work with a lot of large clients and they all have diversity issues in their hiring. But what I hear as a common denominator is that they say, well, we just don't really have a lot of the applicants. Yeah, that are that's diverse. true. That's true, because you go back, if about a third of hires are from referrals and referrals come from people inside the company and white people know white people and black people know black people. Not that I don't know black people and not that black people don't know white people, but the majority of my friends are white. Well, we're um, very tribal in our world. Yeah, we hang yeah. out with our tribe. My zip code, my zip code is not yeah. the most, even though I live in Brooklyn, I live in Park Slope, which is a very white neighborhood, white and Asian. So the people that I hang out with are mostly white and Asian, mostly white, actually. So so the one third of it is determined on who's already at the company. Then the other two thirds, the companies sometimes market to these top schools, which there's, again, racial and privilege biases at those institutions. And if you don't know someone at these companies, you don't think that you can be at one of those companies. So like I've, I have friends at, well, I didn't when I applied to Google, but when I went to American Express, I had a lot of friends there. So I spoke to them and they were like, oh, it's a great company to work at. I didn't know anyone at Google back then. So I didn't even think to apply. This was back in like in 2005, Google was, I think, seven years old then, but I knew nobody at Google. I thought it was just this whole mystery thing. And so I didn't apply. And similarly, so people are scared off if you don't have that insight, if you don't have people saying, hey, you should apply. And, and you, you, like they say, you need to see it to be it. So if you don't see people like you at these companies, you may not think that one of these companies is a possibility for you. Got it. What is the main innovation here? Is it a change of tactic? Is it, how would you summarize that for people that are listening and candidates that are listening to give them confidence in this particular process? The best way to have confidence is to understand how the process works, because the companies are not going to change things. The companies are making some efforts. They are spending lots of money for educational programs. And I think Google gave hundreds of millions of dollars to Howard University, or I don't know, I don't know how much, but So they give a lot of money to these organizations, but the money, like it's often not 
tracked and measured and the results are not a focus. So for instance, I've gotten some sponsorships from some organizations and they basically cut me a check to give scholarships to people through Kadima, but I have no requirement to show the results of that. I'm taking that personally. I'm like, hey, these scholarships, I want to make sure that they succeed. But this money is coming just so organizations can say, oh, we're supporting Black-led organizations or women-led organizations. So the disruption and like the innovation should be if the candidate thinks about what, like how the process is, and the process is not going to change anytime soon. And knowing that these biases exist, how can you overcome those biases? Some things to think about are at, when roles are posted, if you don't get your, your application in the first week or two, you are likely not going to be considered. And that goes back to the volume of applications that these top tech companies have, because when you open up a role, Within a week, I would get 100 applications at the companies I worked at. Within two weeks, hundreds to maybe thousands of applications. At that point, we had all that we needed. That and type of, uh, with referrals thrown on top. And so but the rest you, of them that came in just kind of went into the trash bin? Not in the trash bin. It just stays in a queue. Yeah, when I was The perpetual queue. <laughs> yeah. Like, so the role is on the website. So when the hiring manager says, I want to hire this role, they talk to the recruiter, they get the job up on the website. So the job's on the website, then it may or may not be on Indeed or LinkedIn or Glassdoor or something like that, but it will be on spotify.com slash jobs or twilio.com slash jobs. And it may or may not be on those third-party job sites. So if you're looking at Spotify or Twilio and you see the job come up, you can apply quickly. If you're just scrolling your feed and LinkedIn, the job may come up, but it might be like four weeks old at that point. Mm -hmm. And if you're hiring a product manager at Spotify, you put you post the role, you get a couple of hundred applicants in, maybe 500 in, in two weeks. Your recruiter then looks at those and then he or she calls those down and picks like 10 or 20 people to reach out to. And then they start the process where then they meet with a hiring manager and then they go through the full interview loops. They're not going back to that pile of resumes that keep coming in. No, they're not. Unless like all, all like the people like crap out there. Yeah. And even then what will often happen is they will redesign the job description because I the knew job it. I was going to say that. Yeah. Is not attracting the right talent. So they may repost it again. And then you'd start that whole process again. And they may look at that point if it craps out, like if you get zero for those 20 people initially in the funnel, maybe they'll go back to that pile of resumes. But again, because a hiring manager cares about speed, because a recruiter cares about speed, they are going to try damn hard for that first wave of candidates to find an offer to give. That makes sense. What's a, I like something that when you work with candidates, they think, oh my gosh, I never knew that. I never would have known that. I never would have done that. Uh, several things. One, cover letters are a big fucking waste of time. 
I, I don't know. If I, I don't know if I'm allowed to. Cur- I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your. You are. Podcast. You are. You are. Okay, good. I live in Brooklyn, so I, th- I think I have to. So it's a big fucking waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Cover letters are a big waste of time. It's so much more effective to invest time in building relationships and networking rather than writing a cover letter, which most recruiters, most hiring managers will not read. Mm-hmm. I can tell you for me personally, it's only a data point of one, but I've actually spoken to lots of recruiters, lots of hiring managers. It's so rare that a cover letter will have any influence on the process and people are spending time on that. I think people spend too much time on their resume. I think you need to have a, what Steve Dalton, someone who wrote the book on the two hour job search talks about is you need to have an objectively perfect resume. So it can't have spelling errors. It it has to look well formatted, but subjectively never going to be perfect. Yeah. So just get it good enough. Yeah. And they and then get and it out. Succinctly, right? Not just over over verbose, but correct. Because people yeah, are yeah. like they scan it, right? They look at it between six and sixty seconds. Oh wow. And you as a person are like sweating over it. And like <laughs> I have had candidates that saw like a spelling error, like a typo, and they resubmitted another resume. And I can tell you that they're not going to notice it most of the time. Although you should not submit things with typos and spelling errors. I know there are, I don't personally, if I see several of them, I will toss it out. If I see one, I'll kind of be okay. okay. But I know probably 10 to 30% of people that if they notice a spelling error or a typo, they will say, forget it because they're just looking for reasons. If you're looking at three to 500 resumes to get to 10 to 20 to talk to, you're looking for easy answers to say no to people. So a, sp- a spelling error, great, get rid of it. Sounds like working with the media. I mean, that's exactly uh, yeah. how they work. They scan. That's a good number, six to six, six to how many seconds? Six, six to, to 60 seconds. Yeah, six to 60. Well, if you get 60 seconds from a journalist, boy, you've got something there, <laughs> right? Well, right. So if you yeah, see a resume I mean, and like you got to grab them in the first six seconds, like yeah, I you have in to social media, them. they say three seconds. I think you get six seconds in a resume. But if you don't grab someone's attention in six seconds, they're going to just put it in the no bucket and move on to the next one. Yeah. And I'm sure you have several hooks of grabbing that attention. Like in a press release, you got a headline, you got a summary, you got the first paragraph, hook, hook, hook. If you make, make it through the first one, you might make it through the second. You might make it through the third <laughs> and so, then you're so golden. So the difference though with media is you have the ability to create content and yeah. to like and create your story. But the way resumes are typically selected, especially at these like top tech companies, is a look at the company you worked at before. So you can't like spin that. Like you either worked at Amazon or you didn't. didn't. Yeah. They look at your job titles. You can massage those a little bit, but you cannot lie. You can't lie about this because you will be found out during background checks and plus it's unethical. They look at your projection, your trajectory within, like, are you getting promoted? They look at quantifiable impact. So this goes to like how you are as a writer. So not that you're just responsible for the marketing, but you led the marketing sponsorship activity that led to four times return on investment and NPS production record, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there you can like help with your content. And then they look at school and they, I I think like the job title I talked about. So, but if you don't have that clear and people can see that and you can use like to your point of getting attraction of the media, 
if you have good companies on your resume, maybe you put that in bold. Mm-hmm. You don't have good companies on your resume and like, not like bad companies, not like Enron, but companies but that like not recognizable of. companies that they would go, oh, they worked at so-and-so. Right. That was my next question for you. What about these guys that don't have that yet? So then you need to network and you may need to do stepping stone opportunities before you get into one of those large companies. So you need to like, think about when you're thinking about your next job, focus a lot on the logo focus on the brand because that's how people generally make with that six second decision on the resume. They look at that. Like when they did my uh, welcome message, when I I joined my last company, they're like, Alan Stein came from Facebook and came from Google and came from American Express. They didn't say that I am a marketer and operator. They, They name dropped that stuff. And they also said, I went to Columbia Business School. They didn't say where I went undergrad, Binghamton, which I'm as proud of. But they like the 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 note that my boss sent out was all things to impress other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And when you're a hiring manager, you want to impress other people that, hey, I hired KJ here and she has done like she's worked on campaigns for Toyota and Walmart and who like whoever. They're not going to say that she's a podcaster. They're going to say like these big names that demonstrate like they give you authority and credibility even though because that's how people are like they're into names but that's why we're in a richie rich that's right looks really cool our world today you know and that applies with everything and even recruitment so you're exactly right yeah what do you have any like great success stories of helping candidates that land some really cool gigs yeah so my one of my first clients was he was a well he was using it as a euphemism for being unemployed but he said he was a contractor he was doing some contracting work and a, a consultant and he but understanding his strengths of what he was doing he was a kind of like a customer success manager but he was we're talking to customers in a very technical manner and he also had a technical bend to him so I was like, you can like, and he likes talking to customers. He liked talking to customers in a technical way. He's worked, he worked with some large organizations. I think it was like University of Florida and maybe ExxonMobil or something like that. So I was able to help shine a light on some of his big successes that he had that he was kind of burying. And we created a list of target companies and he like we positioned him well for to become a technical account manager at Salesforce. He went through the interviews and he interviewed well and he, he got the job. And now he's been there for a year and a half. Unfortunately, we were not able to negotiate for more compensation for a couple of reasons. One, I was at Salesforce at the time. So mm-hmm. I kind of had to recuse myself from that. Usually I help negotiate for more compensation for people. Some, the most I've been able to get for people is $143,000 more. But with him, I just gave him some simple negotiation tactics and said, hey, dude, you got to do this on your own. So I wasn't able to get him that. But he's now at Salesforce. I think he's been there for a year and a half. I believe he just recently got promoted. That's fantastic. And he'd never worked at a a large company like that before. No, he hadn't. But he had worked with some big technologies and done implementation of, I think, Azure and like Microsoft Azure and a few other things. So we highlighted that on his resume, but 
a big part of it was not just submitting his resume, it was through building his network out. So once he identified the target companies he wanted to look at, then he started talking to these companies. And in the Salesforce situation, I actually didn't even refer him. I asked someone else to refer him because I had a conflict of interest working at Salesforce and running Kadima. But I did put a good word on, on his behalf just to the hiring manager and said, hey, just take a look at this dude. I told her that I don't want any influence on this. But yeah, I've helped people get into companies that I don't work at too. I got a lot next dude uh, job in at Amazon coming from Anheuser-Busch. I got a woman going from like a second tier consulting firm at, to a great job at Meta where they she got she's getting paid $80,000 more and they relocated her from Boston to Austin, Texas, which has no tax. So it's a hell of a lot more than $80,000 difference. And they yeah. paid for her relocation for her and her husband. That's fantastic. Yeah. It seems to me that instead of, I mean, I think it's great that we continue to push these big tech companies and other companies to have more diversity in their hiring. But we also have to look at the other side of the equation, which is what you're doing. And the candidates and the applicants have to disrupt. And this is really your forte. because. We can't sit around and wait for them to do it. And you said, obviously, I mean, they're doing some PR things where they're donating money to help these causes, but there's really no follow-up or track ability to track how that's working. So it's really behooves and it's up to the candidates yes. and these diverse, underserved, underrepresented, but badass candidates to disrupt the whole process. Yes. And you, you do that by taking ownership of your career. So our tagline is you own your career and Kadima accelerates it. And the way that we teach our clients to, to do it is a six step process that we call the growth framework. And first is identify your goals. What's important to you, but the most important aspect of that goal aspect is identify the companies where you wanna work for because a company is eventually gonna hire you. Then realistically assess your strengths. The company is going to hire you for what you have done. They don't give a shit what you want to do. They want to see what you have done. <laughs> then the third part is outreach. So company is going to hire you, but ultimately it's going to be an individual who's going to be that decision maker. So you need to influence people. So you need to have outreach at like build outreach intelligently and thoughtfully at those 40 companies. And there's plenty of ways to do that. You can leverage LinkedIn, you can leverage alumni databases that you're part of or community groups that you're part of, and you can just build that out. There's lots of good books on that, but you need to invest time in the outreach. Then the fourth part is work the system, apply for the right roles at the right time on the right sites so that you get in within the first week or two of that role being open so that you're actually in consideration. Then the fifth part is training and tenacity for the interviews. So the interviews, while they can be intimidating and they can be inefficient and they can be unfair, they're extremely consistent. So you can understand what to expect for it. You can train for it. You can practice for it. You can come in prepared and do your best during the interviews. But in addition to training, you need to have tenacity because the numbers are always against you. At the beginning of it, you're like one out of a hundred or a thousand. By the time you're actually interviewing for the role, there's probably three to five other people interviewing. So it's still a one out of three or a one out of five chance that you get it or more likely that you won't. And then the last part is high impact negotiations. 
So once you get that offer, it's likely not the highest that they're willing to go. So understand how to negotiate effectively because putting in about a half hour or half hour to two hours of time in negotiating effectively will get you significantly more and into the six figures more on an annualized basis. And that will give you the best opportunity to take control of your career, accelerate your career, and then build long-term generational wealth. Alan, that's awesome. You gave us the playbook. That is so generous. Thank you. Sure. I, I was like, I wonder if he's going to do it. I wonder if he's going to do it because I really wanted to know. And, and people can download the playbook if they go to our website. We, we have it right there. Okay, good. So we'll get to that. What does the name of your company mean? Great question. So when I came up with the name, I was thinking about accelerating careers, accelerating the trajectory of people. So I was thinking about different words, different ways to say accelerate. I was having drinks with a buddy of mine who's Israeli. And I was like, hey, David, how do you say accelerate in Hebrew? And I'm Jewish. So there's some, I don't speak Hebrew, but I learned it as a kid, but I don't know any Hebrew. David said the word acceleration, but it sounded crappy or I, it didn't really ring true. <laughs> and then his next option was Kadima, which means forward in Hebrew. It's also the name of, a, uh, I think, a, right, uh, a left-wing political party in Israel as well. I'm not getting political with the name, but it was really just about forward and forward motion of your career. So when David told me this, I was like, that's awesome. That's so, it. Yeah. So that's how we got it. That's it. And that's Kadima. Yeah. So what were you like? What was little Alan like? Like, how did you get up to this? I know your epiphany, right? But were you always this like recruiter? Let's get everybody involved. Let's get, you know what? We don't like, let's get her involved or him involved. Like they've not been with this. Have you always been one to call bullshit? I've always been one to call bullshit. Yeah. I, like I have a big hypocrisy, like hypocrisy and bullshit are my biggest pet peeves. So I'm not a big fan of people that say one thing and do another. I don't know why, like, I don't know why that sets me off, but especially in the corporate setting, I've worked for some great companies that talk very highly of values and they often follow them. But I think that when they say, when I was at Facebook and they talked a lot about having courageous conversations, and then I saw what happened to me and other people when they had courageous conversations where they were not welcome. It's like, why the fuck do you have all these posters up in the hallway <laughs> if we're not going to do that? And that would be and, another courageous conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, I would talk to my manager who I was having challenges with near the end of my tenure there. And I was like, hey, I'm just having like a, a frank conversation with you here. And he would shut it down. And I was like, okay, so I guess we don't really live by these values. So that stuff just pisses me off because I'm someone who, when I say something, I do it. Although I forget sometimes, but it's not intentional. But if I say that I'm going to show up to your podcast... I will show up to your podcast unless something gets fucked up in my calendar, which has been known to happen, but it's not intentional. <laughs> Were you always like that as a little boy? I'm very black and white. So I'm like, yeah. if you say you're going to do something, then you do something. So what's that like as a dad? Because you claim to be the world's best dad. I, I am. I have proof right here. Uh, right here. Uh, you are. Um so it's interesting, like my three kids are slightly different. One of my sons is like very, you said this, so then you have to do this. And very similar to me, even though I'm like, hey, it doesn't always work out like that. That's not life. 
<laughs> my daughter's a little bit more flexible on things. I have three kids. They all have different personalities. They're all great kids. They, as long as the, their credit card works, they aren't too, too tough of kids. And yeah, but um, no, I, I love my kids. And that was also a big factor that led to Kadima starting. So when my kids were younger, I was very involved in their life. I was coaching their football team, flag football team and soccer I did one year and baseball. And I still go to those events, but my kids don't want to hang out with their dad anymore. So I had to get a hobby. So I started this side gig. So Katima is your hobby. <laughs> it, it was. I started it while I was at uh, Salesforce. I was doing it for about a year and a half before as a side gig, before it got big enough and before Salesforce kind of put the kibosh on me marketing it. And then I was like, okay, if I got to choose one or the other, I'm choosing Kadima. And you went and I, I love it that you went in this direction. I absolutely love it. So, so it used to be a hobby, but now it's your full-time gig, right? And you have how, so you had a million careers to accelerate. Where are you on that? We're about 999,980 off. Okay. So we, have, we have about 20 since we've incorporated or not incorporated, uh, I don't know, become an LLC. But I've done a lot before, but I have a spreadsheet on this as I do for everything. And we're at, I believe, 20 careers accelerated at close to $2.1 million. So in incremental compensation for the people that we've helped. That's fantastic. We're going to have to put a counter on your website. So I, That's on our list. Uh, I got to get my website up, right? Like the, the McDonald's thing of billions and billions served. So yes, yes. Billions and billions of more money earned. Yes. So now that this is no longer your hobby and it's a full-time, full-blown startup, right? But what do you do on your time off? Like, do you have any crazy passions? I walk a lot. So I've, well, you are in Brooklyn. I went into a bout of depression late in 2020. I think it was just a really shitty year for everybody. Lots of stuff going on. And I also found that I wasn't getting out. And I don't know if not getting out caused me to get depressed or... I didn't go out because I was depressed, but I've started to walk a lot and listen to a lot of podcasts and listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I walk about eight to 10 miles a day and listen to podcasts and audiobooks. And I've been listening to Mets are in first place now. So when the Mets are good, I get on their bandwagon. And when they're not good, I get off the bandwagon. I, I used to be a diehard Mets fan, but I've died too hard for too many years and it's been since 1986 that they won the World Series. So I just follow them when they're good. And now, now, yeah. now they're in first place. Because that five, makes you happy. Two. Yeah. Well, you know, walking is very therapeutic, super therapeutic. Do you it have is. any favorite podcasts that you've come across that you really like since you've been doing these eight to 10 mile walks per day? Yeah. So definitely wrote like there's a whole swath that I like to listen to. I like Tim Ferriss's podcast. I like Angela Duckworth and Stephen Dubner of No Stupid Questions mm. podcast. I like Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. I listen to some entrepreneurial podcasts of like Amy Porterfield and Entrepreneurs on Fire because I'm an entrepreneur now. So I'm listening to a lot of that stuff. The Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish, I think his name is. And then I'm launching a podcast soon, so I'll be listening to that. Although I actually have a hard time listening to it because I've already had the conversation. Right. You'll have to yeah. promote it. You don't have to listen. Just promote the hell out of it, right? Yeah, but that is supposed to come out this week. And I think we're dropping our first three episodes. The trailer's coming out this week, and the first three episodes are coming out next week. And I would That's love to have you great. on as a guest at one point, KJ. 
That's great. I would love to be. Thank you. Thank you very much. So how do people get a hold of you and what's the name of the podcast and how do they download the playbook from Kadima? Yes. So you can find everything at kadimacareers.com and podcast is called the sick podcast. The uh, sick podcast. S Y C K steer your career with Kadima. So and whenever anyone offers some great career advice, I like to drop a dad joke or two and say, hey, that's some sick advice. <laughs> so, so it usually gets a laugh out of people. It gets eye rolls from my three kids, but whatever. Um, so sickpodcast.com, S-Y-C-K-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. And to download our growth framework, you can go to our website, kadimacareers.com. And then the last place is I post daily on LinkedIn. I think that's how you and I cross paths through our adventures on LinkedIn, where yep, I met we lots, there. <laughs> lots of great people, including yourself. So I post daily there and I'd love people's feedback on there. You can find me, Alan Stein. You can look at Alan Stein Kadima or Alan Stein Google or Alan Stein Facebook or Salesforce and you'll uh, find me. Awesome. Now, before we go, you mentioned dad jokes. Yes. I need a dad joke. Oh, God, I'm really bad on the spot. Well, okay, I'll give you one. Okay. I gave you the sick, uh, sick you advice give me one. one but, okay. okay, I'll okay. give you some time Yeah, okay. You ready? Yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? I eat mop. I eat mop who? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> this is great. I eat my poo. Oh, I eat my poo. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay, um, I have like a 10-year-old boy humor at heart, so you'll have to tell that to your kids. That was I, I will try that with my I kids. I, I, I bet I will get two out of three eye rolls from that. <laughs> okay, your turn. Oh, God, you're killing me here. Can I pass on this? Okay, I, you can pass on it. I, I need time to prepare for really good dad jokes, and I, I'm just not off the cuff. I, I, I need something to to react to. So no apologies. problem. No problem at all. I actually won on the dad joke thing. Yes. You are a better <laughs> the dad. Best dad ever. That actually says something. I'm the world's greatest dad, but you trump me with dad jokes. So congrats to you, KJ. We'll have to get you an, uh, a, we'll have to get you a uh, world's greatest dad joke. Um, I know comedian. we have to. Well, we only, yeah. I've only gotten good at it because every Monday morning I join the sales team meeting and they have a dad joke. Ah. <sighs> So you're As stealing. This isn't even thing. this isn't even original material. <laughs> I know it's not, but that's my favorite one. It's the only one I remember, and it does exactly what happened to you. So exactly, yeah. you got me. You got me with your poo. Yes, I did. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan. This has been great. Sure, KJ. Thank you so much, and appreciate what you do, and keep fighting the fight. I will. You too. Okay. Bye bye. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed. Tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with some tidbit of the show. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Mm-hmm.
Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.